0: In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. The True Crime Reporter never settles for standing outside the yellow crime scene tape. You knock on doors, dig through records, and cultivate sources to get to the bottom of the story. I'm Robert Riggs, the host and creator of the True Crime Reporter podcast, back with another story from three decades of investigative reporting. In this episode, I pulled out my reporter's notebooks, My law enforcement sources opened up their confidential case files. We sat down together to talk. And you can listen in to our journey into darkness. But before you do, be advised that this podcast is for a mature audience and not for the faint of heart. Some episodes may contain profanity and graphic details of violent crimes. December 29th of 1991 marks the date of Colleen Reed's deadly abduction from an Austin car wash by paroled serial killer Kenneth McDuff. The family members of McDuff's victims still suffer emotional wounds nearly three decades later at the time of this episode's recording in December of 2020. The tragic loss and the horrific details of the sadistic torture of Miss Reed were etched into the memories of her family and friends forever. There is no such thing as closure. Not even when MacDuff was executed by lethal injection for the murder of 22-year-old Melissa Northup, the pregnant mother of two children abducted by MacDuff from a Waco convenience store during her night shift in 1992. After his execution in 1998, Northrop's mother, brother, and family members of Macduff's other victims told me they would sleep better knowing that a corrupt system could never release a serial killer from prison again to hurt another innocent woman. But the pain continues. It bubbles to the surface as the calendar triggers memories. December 29th stands out on that mental calendar for the family of Colleen Reed. That's when the 28 year old petite accountant went to a self service car wash on an evening 29 years ago. It was located on West Fifth Street near the popular Tex Mex restaurant El Arroyo. Little did Miss Reed know that for weeks serial killer Kenneth McDuff and his accomplice Alva Hank Worley had been cruising around the University of Texas campus in Austin looking for the right moment and the right type of woman to abduct. McDuff had come close to snatching little girls roller skating down a sidewalk a few days earlier. The sick irony of all of this is that McDuff was on the hunt. That was his word for it, hunt. Just a few blocks from the Texas Capitol, where Senator Ted Lyon had grilled members of the Texas Parole Board about why they had released 65 former death row inmates, including McDuff. When the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the death penalty in 1972, Macduff's death sentence along with other death row inmates was commuted to life. All of them would become eligible for parole. But who in their right mind would set any of them free to kill again? I had broken the blockbuster story that triggered the hearings. I told the television audience that Macduff was known as the Broomstick Killer. He had abducted three teenagers outside of Fort Worth in August of 1966, executed two boys who were cousins, and violated a teenage girl with a jagged broomstick handle before he used it to crush her throat. Twenty-three years later, one day after walking out of prison in 1989 on parole, McDuff started a new killing spree. By the time of the Senate hearings, McDuff had turned Central Texas into a killing ground. Women's bodies started turning up, just as a Texas sheriff who had apprehended McDuff in 1966 predicted when he first heard the shocking news that McDuff was out on parole. The parole board claimed it secretly released McDuff and other violent offenders to relieve prison overcrowding. Later, one member who voted to free him said they had to scrape the bottom of the barrel in order to turn loose 150 inmates a day to stay out of trouble with a federal judge. But allegations of corruption continue to hang over McDuff's release from prison until this day. McDuff cruised hundreds of miles, a typical trade of serial killers on the hunt for victims. In December of 1991, Mcduff and Worley drove around Austin in a two-door tan 1985 Ford Thunderbird with a long, distinctive body style that was memorable to witnesses. Mcduff's soulless, chocolate-colored eyes spied Colleen Reed alone in the car wash, spraying soap to remove dirty streaks on her white Mazda Miata sports car. He stalked his prey like a shark, circling the car wash, McDuff quietly rolled into a nearby stall. Macduff slipped up behind Colleen Reed. Bulked up from pumping iron in prison, McDuff grabbed Reed around the throat with one massive-sized hand, lifted her off the ground, and shoved her into the car. Witnesses heard a shrill scream, a car door slam, and got a brief glimpse of Macduff and Worley as they sped away, but no one got the license plate number. Colleen Reed suffered unthinkable acts of rape and sadistic torture for hours. Worley confessed that she screamed so much that finally nothing came out when she screamed. Finally, McDuff announced he was going to, quote, use her up. Leaving Worley behind, McDuff drove away to find a shovel with Ms. Reed in the trunk of his car. Seven years later, A month before Macduff's execution, prison investigator John Moriarty used a ploy to close the chapter on Miss Reed's death. Macduff wanted to see a dentist on death row to relieve a painful toothache. Moriarty had the warden tell Macduff there was a two-week waiting period, how painful that would be. Then, Moriarty struck a deal. Macduff could see the dentist the next day if he divulged the location of Colleen Reed's body. Armed guards took the unusual step of transporting Macduff off death row to a remote location in a rural county. Seven years after burying Colleen Reed there, McDuff directed U.S. Attorney Bill Johnston to the exact spot where he had buried her body in a dry riverbed. It was Johnston who had organized the original manhunt that led to Macduff's capture. It was Johnston who had prosecuted the parole board chairman who released McDuff for corruption. And now it was Johnston who would touch Colleen Reed for the first time since she had gone missing those many years ago. On his hands and knees, Johnston carefully scraped away dirt revealing Miss Reed's skull and skeletal remains. He found her knotted shoelaces in the grave, McDuff's signature method of tying up his victims. An ATF agent and an Austin homicide detective took Colleen Reed home, wrapped in a blanket on the back seat of their car. Bill Johnson and U.S. Marshals on the case would serve as pallbearers at her funeral. And that brings us full circle to today's episode on the 29th anniversary of Colleen Reed's abduction and murder. Now, you are going to hear from Colleen Reed's niece, Jessica. Jessica asks us not to reveal her last name. She fears that Hank Worley, McDuff's accomplice in her aunt's murder, may get out of prison on parole someday. I have asked Jessica to read the email that she first sent me after discovering the True Crime Reporter podcast about McDuff's murder of her aunt and countless other women. Note that she was a 10-year-old girl in grade school at the time of her aunt Colleen's murder. Now, here's Jessica.
1: Hello, my name is Jessica. My aunt was Colleen Reed. My father was married to Lori Bible when Colleen went missing. I was in elementary school at the time. Colleen had spent Christmas Day with us a few days before she went missing. She had gotten me and my two brothers super soaker water guns for Christmas. We were so excited to get those guns, and we wanted to use them now. We asked Aunt Colleen if we could wash her car with them, and she, of course, said yes. So we went out with our new water guns, and we washed her white car. I'm sure you can imagine the ending results of three kids washing a white car with water guns. Muddy streaks painted the car, leaving it leaving it worse looking than when we started. A few days later, my aunt winds up in the car wash cleaning up our mess. You can only imagine the amount of guilt I carried through the years. Had we only done a good job when washing her car, she wouldn't have been at the car wash that night and she'd still be alive. Might I add, at no given point in time did the family ever hint at such a thing, the guilt that I carried was solely from my own head. I know now as a grown woman, as a mother, it wasn't our fault. She could have cleaned her car earlier or during daylight hours, but nonetheless the series of events leading up to her disappearance ultimately started with us on Christmas Day. Up until tonight, I've never really looked into the details of her disappearance because somewhere in the back of my head I was thinking, I lived it. Why look for information about something I lived through? You and I both know that your perception of situations is different depending on your age. For example, our perception of the way we view Christmas or Easter when we're 10 years old is completely different from when we're 30 years old. It's because of this and Also approaching the anniversary of her abduction, I decided to take a trip down memory lane. Thus far, my recollection of that time in my life was of the news reporters in our home all the time, the fights between my father and Lori, the missing person flyers that blanketed our home, the people asking questions, or the way I was treated when they discovered that my aunt was calling I never truly understood the magnitude of the situation and the effects it ultimately had on my life. I remember when we finally found her. I think I was 17. My father and Lori had been long divorced, and I had run away to Padre Island in an attempt to be my own person at the ripe old age of 16. Lori reached out to me and told me that Aunt Colleen had been found and we could finally lay her to rest. I drove home and attended the funeral. We laid roses for each one of the other victims whose life was taken too soon because of this monster. I think it was 11 to 13, I can't remember. I do remember the coffin. I remember thinking to myself how little bit of remains were in there when she was finally buried. That was one of my thoughts during the funeral was how little of her was actually in the casket that we buried. It's all so hazy between recent traumatic brain injury I sustained and the years between details are fuzzy and more like a dream I had. Tonight I googled Colleen Reed. Tonight I started looking into the facts. Tonight my perception of that event changed. I stumbled on a couple of podcasts from you. I listened to them all. Although your podcasts were extremely hard to hear and tears are still streaming down my face making this difficult to write, I appreciate the delicacy you took when when reporting the details, specifically when it came to the confession of Worley. That was one of the most disgustingly painful things I've ever heard and unfortunately painted a vivid account of her last hours. With all that being said you reported respectfully compassionately and tactfully with us in mind from the bottom of my heart thank you thank you for still being so careful of our feelings and not treating this like just some story you made the personal connection and it speaks volumes of your character and your ability to investigate and report i doubt if i can be much help but if you Find yourself in a situation where I could. Please don't hesitate to reach out. I hope you blow the top off these crooked bastards on the parole board, if you haven't already. They are the ones to blame. And I spent years blaming a little girl who was only in elementary school. I bet they haven't shed one tear over their mistake. I guess I've shed enough for them, too. My apologies for taking up so much of your time. Thank you again for your interest, your investigation and your tactfulness and how respectful you are when reporting your discoveries. Stay well. Jessica.
0: Jessica, I want to thank you for sharing that and we're going to pause for a moment and when we come back we're going to talk with Bill Johnston, the former federal prosecutor who led the charge to hunt down McDuff, bringing back for prosecution, prosecuted the parole board chairman, and was the la- the first person to touch your late aunt's remains when she was found. All right, so we're back with Jessica, the niece of the late Colleen Reed, who was abducted from an Austin car wash December 29, 1991, and Bill Johnston, the former federal prosecutor who Launched uh, the investigation for, in the hunt for serial killer Kenneth McDuff when no one else was willing to pick up the torch and run with it. Uh, Later prosecuted the parole board chairman. And was the person who got on his hands and knees when McDuff pointed out where he had buried your aunt's remains. This is seven years later. And Bill was the first to touch the remains of her skull which had been buried Uh, we both want to thank you for coming in here and talking to us we think it's important that the public hears what happens to the victims families and for you it, it 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 seems that this is a trauma that changed your life and put you on a different path at age 10
1: yeah absolutely
0: you know during the
2: different podcasts we've done and series we've done, we've talked about law enforcement and of course talked about the perception of law enforcement these days. And you have the defund the police movements and all these different things. And it seems like a tug of war of politics, but there's something that there should never be a tug of war about and there should never be conflict about. And that is serious, violent criminals and, uh, people like Kenneth McDuff, people that are so mean, you know, they do terrible things to other humans. There just shouldn't be a way to look at that from the left or right. It's just uh, protection of humanity and the importance when Robert shared your incredible, um, writing and now you've spoken it. Um, it, it struck me that, um, doesn't matter what year we're in. It could be 200 years ago or 50 years ago or today. The importance of setting our teeth against very violent criminals has to always be there. We can't – that's the impression I get. So We can't ever drop our guard and say, well, they're a poor victim of this or that. There are explanations for a lot of criminal behavior. But someone that is sadistic and mean, a right. killer, you know. So that's kind of part of the impression I had after listening to your your words. What do you think? Of, what do you think about that? <laughs> you know, just the idea that I've protect uh, the that we might always have foremost in our minds protection of each other.
1: <clears throat> I don't know. Um, I'm sorry. I'm still just no.
0: Yeah, no. I, and I don't expect you to have any answers. I so good, Barbara. I'm sorry. I, when I first started reading your email, and I hear the super soakers, I go, "Oh my God, is this going to go where I think it's going to go?" And it does. Bill and Bill and I—none of the investigators—we knew this. We we didn't know the story, and um, I'm sad f- for the grief you took on as a child.
1: Yeah, that was that was a lot to carry. Like I said, the family didn't have anything to do with it. It was. You know, I was the oldest out of the three of us and the boys, my brothers, they, um, their father showed up to pick them up and, and, um, you know, it was like, well, they've left, so Hmm. we're done and we weren't. And, 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 and like I said, I I know now it wasn't our fault. Um, but you do, you you carry that. I, I carried it for a while and, um. I don't know it probably probably had a bigger effect on me than I than I think it mm-hmm. did in life.
0: And you recall the conflict that arose between your stepmother who was Colleen's sister mm-hmm. and your father. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the what what did you see happening that it does to a relationship a, a violent crime and loss like this?
1: Everybody's hurt and And when people are hurt, you know you're not careful of other people's feelings. You, because you're experiencing your own pain. And so there was, you know. And now, granted, I was I was young. And back to perception of things. um, It's. I don't. Oh,
2: you know, Lori took on. So Lori became this dynamo in connection with this. She not only. was so involved with us and with the efforts to get justice in the criminal case. She took on the Texas Parole Board and the Texas Legislature. And you may know this story, or maybe you don't, but there was a particularly um, callous member of the Texas Parole Board. Mm -hmm. uh, And Lori— A woman. A woman woman, member. Yeah, a woman. And Colleen's sister, Lori. So Lori— your stepmom, uh, Lori, in a there was a hearing about to start or going on. I don't recall. And Lori sat next to this woman, and introduced herself and said, "Hi, I'm Lori Bible. You have my sister's blood on your hands." Oh, that's how she introduced herself. And Lori's good. Cur- yes, Lori's courage, her determination, was was from the family, the same angle that Robert Riggs showed from the public interest, that they were not going to let this end with catching McDuff, getting him prosecuted, getting him the death penalty. That wasn't enough. That was that was, um, the rose bush, not the thorns. Right. <laughs> the thorns were the ugly truth about the Texas system at that time, how they were letting people out. And Lori, um, she was relentless. And she helped change all the laws in Texas that affects us today, that violent criminals are in longer today uh, and don't get out, you know, like they used to because of Lori. But I can only imagine the stress that brought on her and all of y'all because she had these two, a two front battle, really justice in the connection with the particular case and then justice in the great big picture of Texas.
1: Oh yeah. It's easy to get lost. In, and I think that's probably, you know, where, you know, it's, when problems started i guess you know and and you can't blame her i i I, I would have gotten lost in it i don't know anybody you know i don't know a lot of people that wouldn't have Um, Yes, and but it does it makes you lose focus of the little things in life like you know um but who's to say that's right
0: well when bill says this parole board member was calloused it's an understatement she had voted to release mcduff it appeared she didn't even read the file. She didn't really? even open the file; just rubber stamped it. And at that hearing, she was defiant. There wasn't one ounce of sympathy, regret, guilt—certainly not the guilt that you, all this time, you felt.
2: Yeah, the people that really caused this were those parole board members freeing the monster, and doing so for their own. Financial gain or their own, um, I guess, place in their pecking order, but yeah, they had no regard. They were sociopathic about it, and it freed him to do the things he did. And um, you know, Lori just wasn't going to have it, and that's that's what why she was so focused for so long. And I know it took a toll on on you and your family.
1: I don't understand that train of thought. I really don't. I don't understand how it's okay. How somebody can look themselves in the mirror and go, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I did that, but who cares? You know, doesn't matter. I, I, I don't, doesn't compute with me, I we, guess.
2: We used to call them humorless bureaucrats. You know, they're <laughs> just, this like a puppet and yeah. they had no regard for anything. You know, John Moriarty, I don't know if you know who that is, but John Moriarty was one of the investigators on this, matter, both in the man hunt, but also the the hunt for the parole board, uh, the, the effort to catch the parole board and their mis, misdeeds. And um, Moriarty was working from within a system to go after the system. Robert Riggs nicknamed him the Dancing Bear. He was like a bear in a circus balancing on a ball because he was fighting his own Mm-hmm. paycheck essentially yes <laughs> he was fighting this very people and th- but but he did so at great risk and it worked out for him but he didn't know that at the time right but the people he was looking at were his his supervisors the board he was under and he cared a thousand times more than they cared about anything and he was going to get him and he did
1: so i need to say thank you to him oh, too. He's
0: John Mulherty, and he's guy. He spent hours with Macduff on death row trying to get him to give up the location of Laurie's body. Others, the other women that we – Yeah, I'm sorry, not Laurie. Colleen Reed, Laurie's sister. But also the countless other women that we don't know who, where, what. And uh, he also, in a sense, tricked Macduff into giving up the location of Colleen's body, because he heard Macduff complaining that he had a toothache and he he was really needed help and he, he was painful and all this. So uh, Macduff slipped out of the room, went to see the warden, and he said, uh, when he asked to see the prison the dentist, tell him it's going to be weeks. It's going to be weeks.
2: <laughs> well, and and you know that conversation took place, Robert. So you don't know this, but yeah. you're yeah. entitled to know. So we had already found two other victims based on what McDuff told an informant, uh, someone that we sort of sent in there to talk to him, but he didn't want to tell, he just would not tell where Colleen was. And he refused in every respect. I went down there and sat, although there was a glass between us, closer than you and I are. In fact, quite within a foot and a half of each other. And talked to him about, about that and the issue of the dentist came up and so forth. And then he finally said, um, yeah, you, know, you can't, you won't be able to find her. You need me. And I had just found a body by myself on a Friday about a week before, and I was just thinking I could find anything. I thought I could find the Holy Grail. And so I said, well, thank you, but you know, you just give me a description. And he he got into it a little bit. I was trying to draw some things out. He was describing it. And um, it was a very confusing place because it was above the Brazos River near the town of Marlin, Texas in Falls County Texas and not only had the river flooded a little bit from time to time but you know in 70 years it just the topography had changed it was right. really tough and I although Moriarty and a ranger working with us once we started looking kept saying um, Bill you know we can bring him out here and I said I don't want that guy to get take or get any credit I don't want him to glory in this right. I want us to find her and goodness we used a uh, you know shovels and then we used a, a back a uh, not a backhoe but a tractor with a box blade on it to scrape it. Or we finally had a <laughs> we finally had a bulldozer. We were unearthing football field size areas of and we couldn't find anything. And we had almost no choice by late in the day mm-hmm. and the media had seen us and
0: knew we were what we were doing and the terrain had dramatically changed Tra- it's terrain rural changed area.
2: yes it was a very sandy it was a it was just a difficult area it's a river bottom basically and uh so they brought mcduff out we slipped him in but the way you might imagine the way he then directed us to where she was first of all he was exactly correct i mean he was he probably was within you know six inches of being exact
0: seven years yes yeah, after years the later. murder
2: but he was also as again as you might imagine about mcduff he was also like uh, someone describing how to find their way to the toy store you know he was just saying uh have him stand here no back two feet he was like directing traffic and then he uh he not only told us this may be hard for you to hear i want you to know it though he not only told us where she was but which way she was facing I mean, he knew in perfect detail, and I think he, and Robert knows more than I, but I think he, his mentality was, you know, he, he just, that was his life. He just absorbed his own horror, and it was no big deal for him to tell us exactly where she was, but.
1: He didn't show any kind oh, of. Oh, no,
2: no, McDuff, you know, we've talked, as you heard in this, in the different stories about McDuff, you know, he, as I said to Robert, he lacks something and I think Robert said "What?" And I said in his creation he lacked the spark of humanity. He was, his eyes were dead, they were like a doll or like a shark, and he had not only no emotion, but he was, Macduff was, um, he was not like a human, Mm-mm. he was, and not like a robot either, because mm-hmm. he was, but he was like um, maybe the stories, spiritual stories of a demon. Or some some entity that's not of this earth or not human, yeah. and so he discusses something horrifying, like we would discuss uh, opening a bottle, and uh, at any rate, but that that's how that ended up, and uh,
1: and this was on his parents' property, right? No. no,
2: so we th- we thought we spent seven years thinking that it was near his parents' property, and we had looked all over there. That was in Bell County, Texas, west of Temple. And that was near his parents' house, and we – because that's where Worley, his accomplice, told us this happened and, and directed us. I think – Robert may have a different opinion – I think that Worley told us you know, 85 90% of the truth about what happened, but did not tell us the correct location, because he may have thought if we couldn't find her, he couldn't get prosecuted. Mm-hmm. So he told enough to right. say, here's this horrible thing that happened, and I witnessed it, but uh, you know, good luck finding her. And so, and I asked McDuff that. You know, I said I thought you killed her near your parents' house, and he said no. Uh, and he actually said, "I didn't kill her. I don't like the killing part." That's what he said. Uh, and
1: you know, so, so is he? So
2: no, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. <laughs> no, the I Truth, don't. the truth of it that we believe is that, you know, that he he did kill her.
0: And John Moriarty, the investigator, believed that he had such a strong memory of every exact detail of where the body was placed, where it was, is because he, like other serial killers, relive the event. They derive pleasure from reliving it. And they remember every step, no matter how deep it is in the Mm -hmm. woods, to where they are because they relive it. Robert, you may recall um, the second
2: victim we found – north of Waco, uh, we had looked in the area for her in a thickly wooded area, just filled with vines and poison ivy. And we had looked, um, on a particular day with a cadaver dog. I mean, all the expertise you could ask for nothing. And Mike McNamara, one of the McNamara brothers and Marshalls, that were so instrumental in all this, I tried to get them to come out and help me again, try to try again and uh, they couldn't so i went out there by myself to this area north of waco and mike said to me mike the marshal mm-hmm. he said bill you're about his height take him literally the guys touched on steps and measurements and it was starting at a place where a fence was sort of down in a dry creek bed 20 paces and mike said he he knows his measurements. Do it. Do it. Walk as if you're him walking out there and finding. And I did exactly that. I took 20 paces at my height. I'm 6'4". At my height. And then I probed in the ground and and I found her. But that's how sick and uh, I don't know what else to say, Robert, how he remembered remember things in that oh, yeah. sick
0: way. Exact. Yeah. Depraved depraved it's unthinkable we can't even think this way right um i want to take you back you you said in your statement to in the email to me that you left home at 16 yeah was this guilt driving you away and what all had happened
1: i um i'm not really sure it hasn't been until this last week where i've started to dig everything up um, and because i'm finding all, all kinds of new information and I didn't realize how much it had affected me. Anytime I read an article now, um, I just start crying, and I'm like, where are these tears coming from? I, so I, I really don't know. I probably need to get some help pretty soon here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, I had a very troubled, you know. It's Yeah, it seems like it went crazy after that, um, so.
2: Certain things are too heavy for kids to carry. And I think you move on as best you can as a kid. Um, but it's too heavy. And so you try to do the other things you can do. And I think you bury some of this. Oh, yeah. And then at some point in your life, it, you reveal it maybe to heal. I don't know why. But I I will predict that in what you wrote and then – talking today with us and then what's going to happen in the days and weeks to follow. I think that it will be very healing. It's my experience on some things in my childhood.
1: That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. I, I, Cause I, I genuinely didn't, I, d- I didn't think that it had affected me this much. And, and I even said to a friend last night, I, said, I don't know why I keep crying as much as I am. I, um, because you know, up until this point, it's, Yes, my aunt was Colleen, and, and I could say that, and, 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 and that was that, you know. But um, never this kind of emotion, and, and I don't know where it's coming from. and I, But I, I do start looking at everything, and I'm going, wow, there's been a lot of emotionalness for me <laughs> through the years. Sure.
0: Now that you've heard the details from the podcast about McDuff and what happened and the other victims, have you been able to unburden the guilt Or had you already done that, or?
1: I had unburdened the guilt, but I I have to say that the details of her final um, hours, you know, that guilt is, you know, it's it's surfacing, it's there, um, hearing what she went through.
0: Well, it's certainly a hard thing for a 10-year-old girl to take on thinking that that the joy of that super soaker. You know, I remember giving super soakers to my children the the fun and spraying, but that it would that you would blame yourself for what happened later.
1: Oh yeah. I I I don't know how anybody couldn't have, you know, it's mm-hmm. you leave a car looking as bad as we did and and she's abducted and and killed because she's cleaning up that mess. It's like Well.
2: You, you know of course in the timing of events in the um, mystery of time and mm-hmm. moments and it just wasn't your fault it wasn't your fault at all you did nothing wrong you were a kid and the we don't know why uh, we don't know why horrible things happen to people and you know the, the world's a, a rough place sometimes with when there's people like McDuff in it but the timing of that was not yours. It was, it was just something horrible that happened. But you're, you're 100% clear of all of it. But I know that you were sweet and wonderful to Colleen when she was here and Lori, and yeah. so thank you.
0: And we also know it wasn't uh, your aunt's fault. It wasn't the wrong place, wrong time. It was, and what we do know on McDuff, and we do know on serial killers, they are hunters. And uh, he even talked to Moriarty on death row about – he. it was his words, hunt. Right. He was hunting like prey. Um, and there had been near misses in Austin, and God knows how so many other places, where he had been out cruising and saw little girls on roller skates, little girls, and right. was going to grab them. Right. It just – It's no way to explain it or understand
2: it. And, you know, also, for your information – although you would have known when you were 10 until the, until your aunt's case until Colleen's case and the yogurt shop killings which we haven't discussed yet Right. until that Austin was one of the most innocent large cities in the country
1: yeah.
2: Austin had an innocence I used to work mm-hmm. in Austin prosecute cases down there and uh, there were drug problems and things like that but no there was no serious violence in Austin, Texas nothing it like was, this no it was a Shangri-La in some respects it had the all the fun of Austin, but no violence.
1: Yeah.
2: And MacDuff ruined the innocence of Austin, Texas, and it exists. It, I mean, it's yes, it's still, the wake still churns from it.
0: And so I moved there in 1990 from covering the White House with President Reagan and living in Washington, D.C., which earlier President Nixon had described as the crime capital of the nation. <laughs> and... I was stunned in in moving Austin. It was very laid back, but I was stunned. Everybody left their doors unlocked. (laughs) You wouldn't leave your door unlocked in Washington D.C., but everybody left their door, and it was that kind of Mm -hmm. innocence. And boy, this just sent an an emotional shockwave through that community. And that goes
2: back to the
0: parole board, you know,
2: letting him out. How dare they loose a monster to the streets of Austin, Texas, Waco, Temple, Dallas? How dare they? And that, you know, they, they had a hand grenade, hand grenade with the pin out. They rolled it somewhere, and it rolled in Austin, and it blew up. And that, uh, you know, the people who are supposed to be protecting us helped ruin uh, Austin's innocence.
1: Has yeah. any of them so much as apologized? No, no,
2: not a one. It, mm-hmm.
1: it taken any kind of responsibility? They no. just,
2: They mm. just... When I prosecuted the chairman of the parole board, Dr. James Granberry, uh, he had an opportunity at sentencing to and, – and I prosecuted him on a for tax evasion, actually, mm-hmm. because that was the strongest case I could make. We had information that he had been offered bribes, but I couldn't prove he had accepted them mm-hmm. uh, from McDuff's family, actually, um, that they had tried to involve him in an oil and gas venture and things of that nature, but we couldn't prove the end of it, but – but everybody knew, including the federal judge, why we had him there, and everybody knew why he was being prosecuted. It had to do with letting McDuff out. And Granbury, Dr. Granbury, had the opportunity to address the court regarding any matter before the court, and he he didn't uh, he didn't apologize for anything.
1: How can he not have any guilt? I don't. I don't get that. I don't.
0: I don't know. And Bill took the same approach that was taken back in the. Twenties, thirties, and the gangsters and Al Capone—he'd murdered many people, ordered the murder many people, but they got him on income taxes, and that's how they put him away. We had to bring our strongest case. We just wanted some accountability
2: for Granbury. Yeah. Yeah. He was the highest-ranking member of, as far as I know, of state of
0: Texas ever prosecuted. Oh yeah, uh, but he was—he uh, was a bad guy. The—the the only person ever to become—come uh, before. Uh, an investigating a committee in the legislature and take the Fifth Amendment, God, more than a dozen times. Nobody had ever done that. Yeah. Wow. Terrible. So, Bill talked about they pulled the pin on a hand grenade. We've talked about now that people have, policymakers, lawmakers, judges, and district attorneys have forgotten the past and the lessons of McDuff. And they're Got live hand grenades out on the street, and that they've got very lenient bail, and they're letting very violent offenders out on one hundred dollars bail. As a victim, what do you say to those people? What should they be thinking?
1: And they should be thinking: What if that was their daughter? What if that was their huh. sister or their mother? You know, because. Um, you always hear about these things happening, but it never happens to your family until it's your family. And what if, you know, I don't know, I, I, I wish they would, I wish we weren't just a bunch of people to them. I wish it was, I don't, it's got me speechless. I, I can't, I can't understand how you can make such a big mistake. And um, and go back and do it again, and you know you're. They're expecting you know, with, with the definition of insanity. It's you know doing the same thing over and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. Is um, exactly, and that's exactly what they're doing. Mm. And it's it is. It's insane. It's I I don't know. Um,
2: I think there's like two dozen capital murder of suspects and these people haven't been convicted admittedly but they're charged with the capital murder in i think in dallas or dallas dallas, dallas
0: county dallas, dallas county they can they, only
2: get the death penalty or life right they're, that are that they let out you know that they <laughs> that are running around
1: maybe there's within enough,
2: a mile of us here it's unbelievable there's
1: enough criminals though that 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 aren't violent that they could be letting out i do it leads me to why why is this happening what is what's the cause?
2: I think you're right I think they've forgotten the past they have they have forgotten that there's a classification of people and it might be one percent. it might be you know a tenth of one percent of all people charged with crimes that are so violent you must protect us all from them. There's no other way to do it. That's why jails were made.
1: <laughs> Perhaps they should see pictures of the victims.
2: Hmm.
1: Perhaps they should see hear the things that were done hmm. and um, they need, it needs to be force fed to them.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Jessica, thank you very much for sharing this and to our listeners. Thank you. We want to be your favorite podcast and we'll appreciate your review wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you have a suggestion or know of a case we should look into email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. To follow our email messages with updates and bonus information from episodes, please join our fan base at truecrimereporter.com. True Crime Reporter is a trademarked and copyrighted news production, hosted and written by me, Robert Riggs, executive producer Elizabeth Arnold, producer and operations manager Grace Woodward, producer Siler Burr, Original music for the Free to Kill series, Blair King. Sound design for Free to Kill, Matt Stoker. Graphics, Brian David Kerr. You can read more about all of our news team members at truecrimereporter.com. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass second-hand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimereporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared Don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.